Yeah, so we're looking at the bigger picture. We're saved, our sins are forgiven, we know we're children of God, but Paul said there's much, much more to understand. He pulls the curtain back um, in Ephesians to show us um, what God has been doing in reconciling us to himself. In the early chapters we see that bigger picture. Jesus, through Jesus, God reconciles us to himself and uh, that's a wonderful miracle that God is able, the Holy God is able to reconcile uh, us to him and him to us, uh, us sinful people. But God had a plan to deal with our sin uh, without compromising his holiness but expressing his love through Jesus. But we not only learnt that but we also learnt there's another miracle that we are reconciled to others who believe in Jesus. No matter what the background, no matter what divided us in the past, we read about the one new man in Christ, that all barriers are broken down. There's a new tribe, a new people who are one. And that's true right across the world. And I trust that, that David and Margaret, as they go to Malaysia, will rejoice in the fact that God's people are everywhere. And they're part of that one uh, wonderful family. We also learn that there are blessings secured for us in the heavenly realms. There's an inheritance that is now ours in Christ. It's secure. We've yet to receive it in full. We get hints of that blessing. And also, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a down payment, a guarantee of the good things to come. Now, however, although in Christ we are universally and eternally secure, God doesn't shut us away in some time capsule. Sometimes we think that would be nice. Can we escape the world? Just let's get to heaven. Let's get... But you know, a time capsule to be opened at the end of the age when God renews all things and uh, we then enter in to the fullness of what Jesus has secured for us. But no, rather together, in the meantime, in this age, we are to be God's shop window. Not just individually, but as the church. We're God's visual aid to the world of his amazing wisdom, and we're visual aid to the principalities and powers of his wisdom and his mercy and grace that can take fallen and broken people like us um, who are under his righteous judgment and make them his children fit for heaven. We're not only called to be light bearers, but we are the light itself. We, a couple of uh, Saturday mornings ago, we kind of reflected on the um, Olympic torch and the people that are feel great honour in carrying this torch. Well, we have an honour in carrying the light of Jesus, but Jesus goes beyond that and says, you are the light. You're the flaming torch. Okay, You're not just a carrier, you're the flaming torch. We're not just distributors of gospel tracts. We are a living letter. Paul called uh, the believers living letters. And uh, Jesus, it says, was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. God's um, intentions, God's thoughts, God's plans and provisions became flesh in the person of Jesus and God wants them to become flesh in us, particularly corporately as the church. We are uh, to be that shop window. You remember a few weeks ago, and I'll repeat it, but I said somebody might come to us and say, what is God like? And of course we would go to the scriptures and there's so much that tells us about what God is like, his character and so on. But we should also be able to say, come to church with us and I hope a little, in a little way we'll show you what God is like. We should be 
living letters. We should be God's shop window. If we are to shine our light into the darkness, our lives must be in contrast to the world around us. A light that's only of any benefit because it dispels darkness. It's a great contrast. And um, we are, incidentally, we're in chapter 5 of Ephesians. I didn't say that, but if you'd like to turn to chapter 5, uh, I'm, we're, we're actually going to go, uh, officially we're supposed to be looking from verse 22, but I'm actually going to pick up from uh, like the earlier verses just to put it in pr- practice. But if you've got your Bibles, you might like to turn to that. But in verse 8 of chapter 5, we read this. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but are that rather expose them. Um, when it says that you know, we're to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, it doesn't mean that we've got to hide ourselves away in a monastery or, uh, or be a hermit uh, in the desert, for that would remove God's visual aid. There's very means with which he wants to make this good news known uh, through the church. But we are not to take um, our values from our culture. We are to actively engage in our community and culture, but not take our values from it. We are to live counter-cultural lives. And that's what I've called it this morning, a counter-cultural people. And uh, we're, not, uh, uh, um, we're not to bow to what's these days called political correctness. Um, you know, even from the point that some people feel they can't call Christmas Christmas, they have to call it the festive season because that seems they think is compromising other people. So they try to be politically correct. That's a somewhat amusing illustration, but we are confronted with lots of things. And we're not to be politically correct, we're to be God correct. We're, we're to be the word correct. Um, but this doesn't mean that we stand in judgment on our neighbours. It says that we're to expose them. That's the fruitless deeds of darkness. We're not to stand in judgment on our neighbours because judgment is God's business. But we expose them as we shine the light, as we live differently and as we refuse to be squeezed into the world's mould. Early in chapter 5, Paul is quite specific about what is appropriate moral behaviour, the things that we should live and do as the people of God. But he sums it up in verse 15. He says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Make every opportunity to shine the light, to be different, to demonstrate the gospel in the community um, that God has put us into. And uh, the days are evil, so we have even a greater opportunity to bring the contrast of the light of God uh, into our community. When David um, preached on this first part of chapter 5, I think it's four weeks ago now, He illustrated how our desire to live godly lives is constantly under attack, Um, particularly from the entertainment world and the media. And I find it, I I identified with him when he said, having um, kind of watched television, um, gone to bed and just asked God to cleanse him from the things that uh, almost inadvertently uh, he's taken on board. So, uh, you know, we are under attack and it's, it's not that easy. And to live in a world like that. But the good news is that Paul's exhortations are not just a list of do's and, get, uh, do's and don'ts, but include taking advantage of the ways that God has helped us to live to his glory. 
So in verse 18, having said, don't, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. He goes on to say, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the contrast. Um, people get drunk because they can't stick life or that, that they can't face the, the difficulties that they have. Um, they, they don't know any other way of alleviating the problems and the pressures. Um, it, it's their way, maybe, of having fun or whatever it is. Now, you know, there's no prohibitions on uh, alcohol itself, but obviously on getting drunk. And what Paul is saying, be different. You find your fulfilment in the Holy Spirit. Um, you find it's the Holy Spirit that helps you when things get tough and difficult. You don't have to go into oblivion uh, in order to cope with them. And we find that the Holy Spirit uh, says that we together um, can enjoy this alternative life. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. It's a one another. It's not just an individual thing. It's something we do uh, as a community, how we live differently. So two outcomes of being filled with the Spirit. Um, We sing to one another. We worship God. We sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord. And we give thanks for everything. We're a thankful people. People filled with the Holy Spirit should be a thankful people. Now in verse 21, we have another, one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now I believe this verse is key to understanding what follows. Because there, are, there is reference to some specific submission and a relationship uh, in a marriage situation. And I believe this, is, this, key, this verse is key to understanding those verses. And many would see that these things are countercultural in our society. But I think it's the lens through which we should view um, the next verses. But let's just look at this verse, 21, for a moment. If I say to, to you, submit, how do you feel about that? <laughs> me? Submit? Not me. You know. Um, you know, for some people, the very word uh, will set alarm bells ringing, won't it? And uh, hackles rising for some. Uh, this is probably because the images they have is a, a forced submission at the point of a sword. Submit, you know? Um, or to someone you know, who's experienced an overbearing authority, clearly abusing that authority for their own satisfaction and personal gain. Some, perhaps some very bad experiences of that. Maybe they have suffered severely at the hands of of such a person. Or it might be just the drift of our society to a more independent and self to more independence and self determination. That's the way our our society is going, isn't it? I'll do it my way. I don't need your help. I'll do it my way. And uh, or maybe it's just a lack of respect for authority, because the other place we're told to submit in the scriptures is to the authorities. Um, who are, it says, instituted by God. But even people who shun this idea of submission, I would like to suggest there are occasions when they gladly submit to the authority of others, such as we have this hypothetical person um, whose car breaks down uh, miles from anywhere in the pouring rain. They ring up and it's not long 
before the AA man turns up with a smile. He opens the bonnet, still smiling. Now what do these people do? Do they refuse his help? Do they argue with him? No, they submit to him because they believe that in so doing he will do them good. He will do them good. And um, he doesn't interfere usually, does he? He doesn't, when the AA man said, would you go in and turn on the ignition? He doesn't say, well, I've got a better idea. I think we should do it this way or whatever. We don't. We have confidence that he will sort out our problems and that it will do us good to uh, submit to him. Now, Paul talks here in verse 21 of what we could call mutual submission in the family of God, where Christ is the Lord of every member. Christ, who without... um, in any way undermining his authority, demonstrated that the highest role in the kingdom of God is that of a servant with the attitude that sacrificially sought the good of others. Remember he said this in the context where the disciples were vying for positions. Uh, Even um, the the mother of James and John wanted to, to, to secure some special places for her sons in the kingdom of God. And Jesus made it clear that he himself had not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And he taught them by various ways that the highest in the kingdom of God is one who serves, the one who serves. And what we find is that Jesus himself submitted. He submitted to the Father's will and to our ultimate good and to our most good. Jesus submitted to those things. He secured our good by submitting to the Father. We saw in chapter 4 that we are being built together into a body uh, to grow and build one another up as each part does its work. We've had lots of teaching over the years on the body, the the church as being a body similar to a body with, with, with parts that all have their own function, who often those parts support one another, they all have a job and they are all important. And um, whilst in Ephesians 4 there are specific people mentioned, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, uh, who equip the saints to do this work, nevertheless, every member has a part to play in this building process. Therefore, in order for this process to be effective, this mutual upbuilding, there must be mutual submission. We have to allow people uh, to do that to exercise their gift in building us up. So we must be prepared to serve any. We must be prepared to learn from any, to be corrected by any, regardless of age, sex, class or any other division. And this should be another consequence of being filled with the Spirit. I believe that's part of that list of the outcome of being filled with the Spirit is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it's true that the Holy Spirit never inspires individualism. You will never find the Holy Spirit ever inspiring individualism. Therefore, in the unique context of the body of Christ, this submission should not be shunned. It should be joyfully embraced as a voluntary yielding to other Christians in our community. Um, This can be, of course, illustrated in the area of spiritual gifts. They're given to us, as we know, not to draw, our attention, not to draw attention to ourselves or for us to, to exercise control over others, but it's for the common good. It is for the good of others to encourage them and to build them up. And 
the gift of prophecy is a good example here. Um, it's one of those gifts that can be quite awesome at times. It's one of the most influential gifts. But we're told that it has to be given uh, in the context of sacrificial love and submitted to the body of believers. You know, a, a, even a well-known prophet can come into the church and he has to submit what he, God gives him to the church. It's for the church to weigh what the prophet has to say. So there's an example of that. Well, we're told to do this, submit to one another, out of reverence for Christ. So what does this mean? Well, I've got three things here. Um, First of all, we recognise who it is that has asked this of us. It is Jesus who who has asked us that we should submit to one another and he will hold us accountable for the stewardship of that. That's the first point. Second point is we can only submit to others when we have truly submitted to him. If we have surrendered all to Jesus and then he commands us to submit to others, we will find that uh, a lot, a lot easier. It's when our rebellion and individualism has been surrendered to him, then we can surrender to others. You know, we must remember that this is in the context of the church. It's not in the community in general, it's in the context of the church. Thirdly, we acknowledge the worth of others in God, the spirit of Christ in them. We just sang it, didn't we? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that's there we recognise that every member uh, has been accepted by God and God's Holy Spirit indwells them. And we have a respect for that. And that's out of reverence for Christ. And remember too that the scripture teaches that all are equal, all believers are of equal worth in Christ. Paul says to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then in Colossians, very similar. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. So have we accepted or have we established the principle that mutual submission is what Jesus requires in his church and and that it, it is out of respect for him. It is out of reverence for Jesus that we submit to one another. Now, obviously, that needs to be worked out in detail, which we haven't got time for now, but um, you can think about that in your cell groups along with some other things that I'm going to suggest. But having established the principle of mutual submission, we can now move on to the next verses of this chapter. Um, And in a couple of weeks' time, as Steve and uh, Julian will be finishing off the chapter where the apostle turns to specific relationships where under the lordship of Christ this is worked out. And today we're going to deal with husbands and wives, later it's children and parents in the home and servants and masters or probably um, employees and employers in in our circumstances. And because um, in the context of mutual submission, for there to be peace and harmony in these areas there has to be an acceptance that within the overall concept of mutual submission God ordains roles for people to relate as they relate together just as in the Trinity and we've often mentioned this equal members of the Trinity Father Son and Holy Spirit all co-equal 
Uh, and yet, there is what the theologians call an economy in the Trinity, that the Father sends the Son, uh, the Son becomes the Saviour, and so on. And the Son and the Father send the Holy Spirit. So there, is a, there are functions uh, within these relationships. And um, it, it, it's important to note that, that people here are reminded in this particular scripture we're going to look at of their responsibilities and their roles and not their rights. Okay? It's about responsibilities and duties, not rights. Now, if you believe in an egalitarian society, there's a big word, but it's where equal opportunities means no distinctions of roles for men and women, then you might dismiss this as Paul simply reflecting the subordinate and frequently downtrodden place of women in the society of his day. You might say it's Paul just being uh, cultural. However, it's worth noting that um, the New Testament throughout emphasises the dignity and the worth of women and it's an undisputable fact that the teaching of Christ has lifted women in virtually every society where the gospel uh, has, uh, has taken root. Women have a much higher place in society because of the gospel and because of the teaching of Christ. And uh, as we've seen in, in the New Testament, the emphasis is on spiritual equality. Well, equally, if you're a woman who's been abused by an authoritarian, oppressive husband, then you might want to sidestep these verses. I, I do believe, you know, and over the years, um, having talked to ladies particularly uh, who've suffered abuse from their husbands, the wounds are very deep and very sensitive. And even to discuss these things can be very, very difficult. And, you know, very, very difficult. But what I want to, to do this morning is not, not putting that aside or, or not being sympathetic to that, but let's look at the way Paul describes this relationship, the relationship between the husband and the wife, and this idea of submission in that context. Because right through this passage, Paul compares the relationship between a husband and wife to that of Christ and the church. And vice versa, we find it goes backwards and forwards, one, one describing uh, the other. And um, in the last book of the Bible, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ, the one whom Jesus died to possess. And there's no higher example for marriage than the submission of, Christ to the, sorry, of the church to Christ and the sacrificial love he has for her. Just think about, if you know the last chapters of the Bible in Revelation, what is the centrepiece of what God is doing? It's the bride coming down out of heaven, like the new Jerusalem, with the bridegroom meeting his bride and the great marriage supper of the Lamb. It's just wonderful. And what God has said is, I'm using this example of marriage in order to tell you the wonderful things that are going to happen uh, at the end of the age. So there's no higher example. But equally, Paul says, marriage lived out according to God's plan can be a visual aid of Christ's relationship to his church. So having got all that far, let's, let's read it from verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband 
is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as Christ submits, so as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Remember, this is spoken to people about their responsibilities and duties. And um, nowhere in the New Testament are husbands commanded to subordinate their wives. Never. And notice there is more said about the husband's duties than the wife's. I say that because this passage is often very misrepresented. So then, let's take it little bit by bit. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now we started off this, this thought with mutual submission in the church. And it might seem at this point that in marriage it's a bit one-sided. Women submit, men just do a bit of loving. And you might think they've got, they've got the easy end of the stick. <laughs> but I want to suggest to you, to you, although Paul does not use the word submit for the men, what he demands of the husband is submission. He demands submission. Not like the wife's, which is to the man's leadership, the husband's leadership, but to her highest good. He is to submit to her highest good, even at the expense of himself. So just get away from the idea that it's just the ladies who have to submit. The men have to submit too. And in fact, you'll see, just as Christ submitted as well. Firstly, what is the nature of the wife's submission? It is to her husband's. The women are not commanded to submit to every man, but just to the wife, so the wife in this marriage relationship to her husband. Secondly, it's in everything. It says she should submit to him in everything, in every aspect of life. And this hopefully removes the misunderstanding that some have had and may still have, that this is all about sexual favours for the man, that the woman has to submit to the man's sexual demands or any other narrow um, realm in life. No, this is in everything that she is to submit. Uh, and it is to the Lord. She has to submit to the Lord. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, you know, this is not to imply that her relationship is directly comparable to her relationship to Christ, her Lord. There's no way that any human relationship compares to that. But having Christ as her Lord ought to affect her relationship with her husband. And in the parallel passage to this that we find in Colossians 3, 
I think it's slightly more helpful the way it's put. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. As believers, as having Lord, as, uh, Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Then fourthly, as the church submits to Christ uh, is the way that she is to do it. This is because to do so will result in her highest good. Now, we submit to Christ because he is Lord. Uh, he's the king of, of all kings. Uh, he has been given a name which is above every name. Every knee will bow to Jesus. But I would like to suggest to you that, that, that we, we don't, just don't submit to Jesus in subservience, as it were. But we submit to him because in so doing, he can do us the greatest good that he wants to do for us. If we resist him, then he cannot do that good for us just like the AA man. If we resist him, he can't do the good, can he? Now, I think Paul here is assuming, I'm sure Paul here is assuming that both these people are Christians. The husband and the wife, they've submitted to the lordship of Christ and together they seek God's will um, for their marriage. This is why it's important and why the Bible suggests that difficulties come if believers marry non-believers. Now, it happens, uh, and we know. And there are some times where people have become believers in a marriage and the other, other partner hasn't. And God has a word to say about them, um, all right, that, that they can actually sanctify the marriage. But it just illustrates that point. And also, um, for an engaged couple, um, it's important that they agree that the word of God and the lordship of Christ should be the foundation for their marriage. Otherwise... Uh, trying to work these other things out can be very, very difficult. So why, why do this? Well, because it's God's plan for mankind. It says, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. This is not Paul, again, reflecting some cultural norm. This is Paul going right back to the beginning, back to God's creational foundations for human beings and reflecting that and um, although we haven't got a lot of time we're just going to look at that again just to establish what does this mean this husband being the head of the wife I like to think of it more as leadership that the husband is the leader of the wife and I'll talk more about that in a moment so we look briefly then at uh, where this concept of headship comes from Genesis 1.27 says this so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the image of God um, is not complete in the man alone. It takes the man and a woman to fully display the image of God. Because if you look through the Old Testament particularly, there are masculine and feminine characteristics of God. So together, being different but complementary, um, God is able uh, through the man and the woman to display his image. And in Genesis 2.18 we see the nature of the relationship. The Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. Man had this great responsibility to be God's representative on earth, but it's not good for him to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Adam then was presented to all the animals and he didn't fancy any of them. So that was, that was the end of it, wasn't it? <laughs> but no, Adam, it says for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Remember, there is equality in worth for the man and the woman. But the woman was given to the man to be a helper, to be complementary in this work that the man had to do, which was to be God's representative on earth. And if you look at the whole account of creation and the fall, it is the man, is to the man that God gives the instructions and the prohibitions about not eating of the fruit of a particular tree. And the man is held accountable even for his for the woman's um, mistakes, for the woman's disobedience. The man is held accountable. God made him to be the leader of that team, of that partnership, but he abdicated his leadership. You will find that when the devil tempted the woman, the man was nowhere to be seen. Where What he was doing, I don't know, playing on his computer somewhere probably, but... but <laughs> the, women, the women identify with that, okay. But he was nowhere to be seen. He was meant to protect her. Right? He was meant to be her leader and protector. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and he did not protect her from the serpent's craftiness. But now in Christ, God's plan for the relationship between husband and wife can be fulfilled. So the husband's headship should be after the pattern of Christ and the church. It should be a loving leadership and protection for his wife. And as we've indicated with this idea of submission, if the wife is to benefit from her husband's leadership, then there has to be some submission to that leadership, a recognition. And notice that the husband's headship is addressed to the wife, not to the man. Now then, for the husband... And we're going to have to roar through this bit, really. But as I said, much more is said about the husband, but we haven't got time to go into it in great depth. But um, there are going to be some questions for you yourself to try and tease this out a bit. Now for the husbands and what I've called submission. As I say, Paul doesn't use the word, but think about it. I believe it's submission. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When Jesus died on the cross, he had you and me in mind. Not just a lost world, you know, for Christ so loved the world, or God so loved the world, but Jesus had in mind a future bride. We've already used that word. He had in mind that he was securing for himself an eternal companion that throughout the all, all ages he would share um, love and glory and rule in the new heavens and the new earth. He had you in mind. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, says the writer of the Hebrews, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before Jesus was that all this suffering, all this terrible, terrible suffering, is to an end that he might have a bride. He might have a people for himself. And he, even at that moment, sensed the joy of that. Now then, men go to great lengths to woo and win a bride, don't they? Some do, anyway. 
making sacrifices, lavishing expensive gifts on them, only to treat them like dirt when they're married. I mean, you hear of that, don't you? The woman said, what's happened? What's different? Okay. Well, Paul does not address romantic Casanovas, but husbands and a lifelong commitment. He is speaking to husbands now, and that the, the love that, that some men manage to find and lavish on their, their brides-to-be has got to find itself in the marriage as well. I'd just like to uh, read you a little bit from a commentary that I found helpful but incredibly challenging. Uh, men, I find this so, so challenging. Having talked about different words for love, Greek words for love, that there, there are, uh, he, he says this, Paul chooses the typically Christian word, agape, love, that is totally unselfish, that seeks not its own satisfaction, nor even affection answering affection. In other words, if you're nice to me, I'll be nice to you. All right? but, that, but that strives for the highest good of the one loved. This love has as its standard the model of the love of Christ for his church. It means not only a practical concern for the welfare of the other, but a continual readiness to subordinate one's own pleasure and advantage for the benefit of the other. It implies patience and kindness. I don't always have patience, I know that. And kindness, humility and courtesy, trust and support. This love means that one is eager to understand what the needs and interests of the other are. Men, do you always understand your wives? No. But we give up, don't we? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, I don't understand you. I'm sorry, but I don't. He said, and we'll do everything in his power to supply those needs uh, and further those interests. What a high standard is being set for men. All right? Very, very high standard. And then he goes on, to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Just as husbands took a vow, a public vow, to be faithful to their wives, setting them apart from other relations without, uh, relations to others, so Christians are set apart by, by Christ through the public act of baptism to, to be his faithful bride. This through the word, it is through the word that we were initially cleansed and saved and it's in through the word of God that we are continually sanctified. You know, if we are to stop the world being squeezed into our mould, our minds need to be renewed constantly, don't they, by the word. There is a washing that we need as Christians of the word of God, otherwise the world will overwhelm us. And, uh, you know, that's how it is with the bride of Christ. This is an ongoing process as Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, continues to wash us through the word. And this is how we are kept day by day. He says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each 
one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. A husband and wife are no longer two autonomous individuals, you know, just doing their own thing, but one flesh. And the one flesh doesn't only refer to the sexual union, it must refer to that. But it's, it's a greater union than that, it's a spiritual union. And, um, you know, for the husband, his wife is not his possession or even just a convenient companion. Paul says he is part of him. So, you know, we have to see ourselves as part of one another. It's a mystery, but it's also the union of Christ and the church. These are the principles. How do, you, how do we work them out? How do we work these out? Well, we have to see that, really, um, and it's a good. I've got some questions, as I said, to, to suggest how we can perhaps discuss some of these things um, in, in our cell groups. But let, let's just summarise. Um, we are called to be a visual aid in the world, not just individually, not just giving out tracts to people, but as a people, we are to demonstrate something: God's wisdom, mercy, and grace. And that's in the church. And in the church, we are to submit to one another. There is a mutual submission. Um, but there's another context, too, where this should be seen. Our marriages also ought to be a visual aid. We shouldn't be embarrassed about people coming into our homes. Now, I know there can be all sorts of difficulties and problems. I'm, I'm speaking quite generally, right? There are times when marriages go through difficulties. But in principle, we should be able to take people into our homes, and they should be able to see something of God's love and grace in our marriage. And this submission that is required in marriage is two-way. Wives submit to their husbands because he's the head. Husbands submit to their wives because they are to lay down their lives for them and they're to seek their highest good. Let's ask God to help us to work that out. Father, we thank you for the institution of marriage. Lord, we thank you that um, Lord, uh, you have um, given us such helpful guidelines um, and set it on such a high plane. Father, we're saddened that many want to change the definition of marriage in these days. Father, it grieves us that um, much will be taken away from this wonderful institution that you inaugurated right at the very beginning when you created man. But Father, we, we want to uphold marriage. We pray for those who are married. Father, we also pray for those that are single. Lord, you have a place for singles in this world. Many are called to be single, to serve in the kingdom of God. It's not a lesser uh, status. But Father, we've looked at this passage on marriage and we ask you to help us to live it out. Father, perhaps each one of us has felt some conviction that we've not met these standards, uh, not by a long way. But Lord, by your grace, we ask you to help us that we might glorify you in our relationships, both in the church and in the home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.